Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn. A common topic for conversation these days centers around what information we're receiving and whether we can trust it. Because I have a little background in journalism, information sharing has always been of interest to me, so I'm doing three episodes in a row dedicated to this topic. First up is a conversation with Charles Whitaker, the Dean of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Before joining the Medill faculty, Charles was a senior editor at Ebony Magazine and also worked as a reporter at the Miami Herald and the Louisville Times. He has received commendations for his work from a number of journalism societies, including the National Association of Black Journalists, Society of Professional Journalists, and National Education Writers Association. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the state of journalism today and some of the challenges, especially journalists of color, face in this new media landscape. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Charles Whitaker, thank you so much for being on the Failing Bully podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for joining, asking me. Uh, I'd like to start just to talking about your, your own background, and I'm curious about the instances or stories that, as you were growing up, that pointed you to going into the field of journalism. Yeah, so I, there are two major influences on my decision to go into journalism. One was my fourth grade teacher. Her name was Carol Nolan at um, Horace Mann Elementary School on the south side of Chicago, and I wrote a poem um, that she just raved about mm. and said, you should be a writer. Um, and that just sort of impressed me. It had a, a tremendous impression upon me. Um, up to that point, I used to tell people I wanted to be an osteopathologist because it was the biggest word that I could think of. Um, <laughs> but uh, Carol Nolan said I should be a writer. And I was like, yes, that's right. I should be a writer. And then when I was in fifth grade, I did a report on, I, we had to take a, a magazine or a newspaper and sort of build an essay and a report around it. And I pulled an Ebony magazine and did a P, did my report around a story that a gentleman named Charles Sanders, who was the Paris bureau chief at Ebony, did about sort of uh, African-American expats in Paris. And that got me to thinking, I was like, oh, I want to be a writer. And this magazine thing looks really interesting. That's a job. Journalist is a job as opposed to just writer. And that kind of, from that moment on, I think from like age 10 on, it was sort of cemented in my head that I would be a journalist. Yeah. Can you then share with the listeners kind of your own career in journalism? And then what was it that made you transition into teaching? So, um, I went to Northwestern as a graduate uh, and stayed on for the one-year master's degree program there. I left and went first to the Miami Herald and worked for three and a half years there, one year in Palm, in a Dade County, Miami, um, as an education re- reporter and covering small municipalities in Northern Dade County. I covered about five or six small municipalities at all of the schools of Northern Dade County. And then I moved up to the Palm Beach Bureau where I was there for about two and a half years 
first covering southern Palm Beach County, then covering northern Palm Beach County, um, sort of cops and courts and general assignments stuff, and, and also a number of uh, small to mid-sized cities in Palm Beach County. I went from there, I, but as I said, you know, from, um, from the age of 10, I knew that I wanted to be a magazine writer and, and I specialized in kind of magazine feature writer, writing in, um, in college. And my goal was always to kind of get to magazines. So I left the Miami Herald to go to the Louisville Times, which was an afternoon paper um, owned by the Bingham family, which also owned the, the Louisville Courier Journal. And there I was recruited to be on something called the Enterprise Feature Staff, which was a staff of young feature writers who were charged with covering the changing nature of, of Louisville. That was our charge, you know. Louisville's a vibrant mid-sized city. We were just supposed to go out and cover all sorts of everything from race relations to um, we were also the team that was assigned to cover the implantation of the first artificial heart at Humana Hospital. So it's actually doing a lot of stories about heart transplants and, and medicine, but, um, but race and culture in Louisville. I was the backup critic to the movie critic, the theater critic, and the dance critic. So it was kind of a magazine job within a newspaper. Um, and I actually loved that job and I loved Louisville. It was pretty close. Although when I, when I thought of my life as a magazine writer or a feature writer, I always thought it would be in New York because that's the center of the magazine universe. Um, but the Louisville job was great and I would have stayed there for a very long time, but the Bingham family had this internecine squabble between the two siblings who owned it um, and their mother sold the paper out from under them to Gannett. And Gannett was known as such a rapacious company um, and we were pretty sure that they were going to close the after and afternoon papers were being closed all over the country, you know, this was the early to mid, this is the mid 1980s and afternoon papers were just um, pretty antediluvian by then and were, were being folded. So I was thinking I need, probably should make a move. And a friend of mine happened to be working at Ebony Magazine in Chicago. At that point, I hadn't really thought about working at Ebony Magazine. I hadn't thought about it since I was in high school. Um, but this friend was leaving her job at Ebony and she said, you know what? You always wanted to be in magazines. Ebony, which is based in Chicago, is your hometown. You should consider coming back and working, coming back to Chicago and working for Ebony. So I applied for that job and got it and came. And then that wound up being an amazing job. I was there in one stint for seven years and I covered, God, all sorts of amazing things on multiple continents. I got to meet many of my heroes from James Baldwin to John Hope Franklin, um, to just sort of, you know, towering African-American figures and, and John Johnson, who was the founder and editor, you know, sent me all over the world covering some uh, uh, phenomenal stories. Um, but I got married and had young children and I was traveling all over the place. And my wife sort of said, I remember I missed, I came home from a trip and my youngest son had just sat up for the first time. And my wife was so excited about it. And this is before, this is how old I am. This is before cell phones. And you could sort of get those, capture those moments and send them to someone. I got home and my wife was like, look, he's sitting up. And I was thinking I was missing all these great milestones um, in my young son's life. So we had 
we have two kids back to back. My sons are only 14 months apart. So I have these two small children. My wife's at home kind of being a single parent because I'm on the road all the time. Um, and I just didn't want to be that kind of dad. And serendipitously, Northwestern Medill was looking for a magazine instructor and the dean started courting me and said, you know, wouldn't you like to come and be an academia? And I had never thought of doing that at that point. Um, in some ways, I thought I was too young. I was 34. Um, and I felt, you know, I still had a lot of journalism in me um, and I didn't want to retire to the academy. But they sort of convinced me that that's not retirement. You can still keep a hand in the industry. Um, so after thinking about it, I, he, he must have started talking to me for a, he must have talked to me for a year before I finally said, yes, I think I'll do it. I'll take a dive and, and uh, go teach and came to Northwestern for the first time in the fall of 1992, um, stayed for six years. And then Ebony Magazine called me back <laughs> to be kind of the editor in waiting, editor, uh, uh, executive editor in waiting behind Lerone Bennett, who was their legendary editor. So I came back and kind of uh, worked and, and learned more about management. And I did that for three years, um, but was still feeling that I was not managing my work-life balance very well. So I went, came back to Northwestern in 2002 and have been here ever since. Yeah. I was, I mentioned before we started recording, I mentioned my daughter's a sophomore at Michigan State and one of her roommates, I was asking her a couple of days ago what she was majoring, majoring in. And she said, uh, I'm majoring in journalism. And my first reaction was like, ooh, I'm not sure that's the best field for you. Uh, and I'm wondering for you, for lots of different reasons, on the one hand, people, anybody with a, a, a camera and a, and a blog can be a citizen journalist. Sure. Uh, but I'm also wondering, do you feel like now as Dean of Medill, part of your job not only is to making sure the school is continuing its high reputation and educating journalists, but do you also feel like you are sometimes having to make the case for trained and professional journalists? Yeah, I think that's that's in some ways always been the case in journalism mm. and journalism education. I mean, so I think in journalism education, we've always had to make the case that there is something to be studied within a university that will prepare you for this field because many people feel, and it is absolutely true it has always been true that you don't need a degree in journalism to be a journalist. What I think journalism school does is it grounds you in the ethics as well as the craft. And I do think it sets you on a better path to be a different kind of journalist than many people who just sort of go off and do it do. But I, this is a case I often have to make, and I have to make it more now because the news about journalism is so bad on many mm -hmm. fronts. There's the distrust that so many people have of journalism. And many people think it's just the distrust that people on the right have. But actually, it's very, it's equally true that progressives are also distrustful of media, which they see as tools of the establishment. And then there's the news about the you know, digital disruption has sort of upended the business model for media. And so media, particularly Mainstream newspapers have contracted, and that has meant the loss of thousands of jobs in the industry. And so people look at that and say, oh, my God, this is a dying field. 
Why should I encourage any young person to go into it? Um, and that too is a kind of false narrative. It is absolutely true that it's a, a dynamic and changing field, but we will always need journalism and we will always have journalism. And as a result, I think it's really important that we continue to ground people in the ethics of the practice as well as the, the best techniques. Um, and I think a university laboratory is the best place to do that. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the dynamic changing field, the, the lack of trust, certainly the folding of newspapers. Are there other changes that sometimes uh, someone who's not in the journalism field may not see and may not comprehend? Yeah, the job, the job of journalist is so much harder than it was when I entered the field 40 years ago, where, you know, I was a writer and a reporter, and that's pretty much what I was expected to do when I entered the field. I wrote and I reported, and I turned that over to an editor who edited it, and it went to someone else and went to the newspaper. The expectations for young people who go into journalism now is that they write, that they report, they probably should be camera ready. So everyone is required at some point to do some sort of, you know, you know, video presentation where they themselves are doing a stand up or they should be able to shoot video themselves and edit video themselves. They should have some sense of still photography as well. And they are expected to be on every major social media platform. So mm -hmm. they're expected to tweet and be on Instagram and know something about TikTok and any other new social media medium that is on the rise. And that is just an expectation of new reporters now. So the job where I actually could turn off at some point from the job, um, there was almost no turning off for young reporters. The pressures are immense um, on them to produce and produce content and then to know something about how that content is consumed. So they should know something about search engine optimization and making sure that their headlines are driving traffic and writing in a way that optimizes search. I mean, it's just, um, an, it is an incredibly dynamic field. It's an exciting field, but has vastly changed in many ways, just uh, in, from a technical standpoint than it was when practiced when I entered the field. So all of those changes in, in today's, and the students at Medill now, do all of the things that they have to prepare for, do you find, are they energized by that or are they kind of depressed by it or both? You know, because they're digital natives, they don't even think, they have no idea that these expectations are far greater than they were for me. It's just, this is the world in which they've grown up than they were for me. When I, this is the world in which they have grown up. And so people ask me if we teach social media. I was like, I don't have to teach social media. They can teach me social media. <laughs> what we teach them again are, what are the ethics of social media? How should you be using that to reach out to prospective sources? How conscious should you be about your digital footprint and what you're putting out there? We're teaching them to think about kind of what social, what a professional social media presence is and how it can be used. We're not teaching them how to tweet. Yeah. I appreciate that comment about ethics. It was something I should have thought about, but wasn't expecting to necessarily ask. And I realize this is a very large general question, but I'm wondering if you could point to a couple things that have led to the lack of trust. Certainly, I read a lot about the mistrust that people on the right have of the media, but it's interesting that you also mentioned that people on the left are, are naming that too. Are there a couple things that you point to that 
have contributed to that? I think the major uh, reason, for, well, two things. One, I think we've done a terrible job of helping people understand what we do as journalists. We have this belief that people know the difference between editorial pages and news pages. And, and that has been conflated now. So now it's hard to, it's harder and harder to tell the difference between the editorial pages and the news pages. We think that. We think when we talk about objectivity, um, we think that people sort of understand what that is. And we don't even have a really great understanding of what it is. And, and in some ways, it's a fiction. So in journalism school, we're not even talking about objectivity. Anymore. We're really talking about balance and fairness. And I know Fox News has sort of made those phrases hollow also, but we are talking about bias and balance and fairness as opposed to quote objectivity, but people don't have any sense of what we're striving for when we try to get, you know, the other side to the extent that there is one to comment on something. Um, I think all of that, you know, there's just not a lot of media literacy out there, but also our newsrooms just are not reflective enough of the population. And that is true on both the right and the left. There is a, a classic center-left, highly educated profile, largely white um, profile for journalists in this country. It is a very homogenous field. And that means we all have tended to think alike, to think, to have the same perspective on things. And that, that colors the way we present stories. And that is really what makes people upset. We have, I, as much as we think we're being balanced and and fair and and objective, um, we that center left um, perspective sort of um, colors everything that we do, and we don't have enough voices in the newsroom, kind of providing a counterweight for our own um, biases, and that has contributed greatly to the distrust. Do you find then, and I would imagine that <clears throat> in that, that worldview, that center left white, <clears throat> usually probably male uh, worldview is in the, I guess the major newspapers and magazines. And what I've been seeing certainly in recent years is an offshoot of people starting different uh, news outlets that are specifically geared to an audience. So I think, yes. I think I'm getting this right. I think there's the, for example, an outlet in Chicago called the Tribe. Yes, it's that well, is. Am I right? On that? Created by by two of my former students. Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Tiffany Walton so, and uh, Morgan Johnson. Yep. For those who don't know, it's uh, run by black journalists. I don't know if they specifically focus on is- quote unquote black issues. Um, it's it's, it's but, black millennials, as a matter. Okay. Okay. So when you see things like that, is that something that you celebrate? I do. I think it's good. I think those are, I mean, I think it is wonderful to have these outlets that, um, all, that, that have a perspective and a point of view and that allow people to sort of go and see themselves in an authentic way and, and, and hear themselves in an authentic voice. But I don't think that, you know, then um, uh, uh, negates the need for, for our mainstream media also to include those voices. And that's the difficulty. I mean, if you have if you have all of these, then that means then that means that the mainstream media says, well, there is a tribe, so I, we don't have to have those voices in our in our newsroom as well. And no, no, I think that's that's the case. I think we still need those voices in our newsroom. Yeah. yeah. Can you say a little bit going along that uh, line of thinking too? I'm curious about 
I can, I can guess, but for journalists of color, what are the challenges and hurdles that they face in particular that white journalists generally don't? It's, it has always been difficult for journalists of color to, uh, well, several. One is um, getting, because that center-left perspective is so entrenched, getting people to think about stories about people of color, African-Americans, whether it's African-American, Native American, or Latinx, um, in alternative ways to sort of see that this is a story that's important to the community and we need to do that. That has traditionally been a fight for African-American, for, for journalists of color in their newsrooms. You know, people have just not been able to see the story there. It's like, that's not a story mm. that's pertaining to group X. Um, and the battle to get that story done has always weighed heavily on journalists of color in our newsrooms. Probably be, because a lot of the editors are white males. That's right, because a lot of the editors are white males. That's right. And they're like, that's not, you know, the, the old joke about when is a pothole a, a story? It's when the editor rolls over it and gets <laughs> right? And so the editor, they don't know about those communities of color. That's not a story. That's, our readers aren't interested in that. Um, but convincing them that that's a story has always been a challenge. But but then, you know, the, the double-edged sword of that, of that is that there are also journalists of color who want to do kind of just regular, who just want to be a political reporter. They don't want to be on the black politics beat. They just want to be on the presidential beat. And then they get sort of pigeonholed into do, you know, sometimes you feel you've got to do the black story. So if you don't do it, it's never going to get in. But then you don't want to be stuck in that rut as those are the only stories that you can do, and that becomes uh, an issue as well. So that those are you know competing um, forces uh, that that uh, that um, uh, journalists of color are often battling. Yeah, I was wondering. I would love, if you don't mind, for us to talk about uh, last fall at Northwestern. Jeff, Session, Jeff Sessions came to visit campus. Right. There was some controversy that happened out of that. And you wrote what I thought was just a brilliant online statement that covered so much of kind of where we are in journalism now. So I guess first, would you mind just kind of recapping for those who have didn't aren't familiar with what happened? Would you mind just first recapping that? And then I have a couple of questions about it. Yeah, um, one of the conservative groups on campus invited the former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to campus for a talk. I mean, you know, people like that come to campus all the time. Um, but we are in such a fraught political time that um, that agitated a lot of progressive students on campus. Um, they felt it was an affront to bring Jeff Sessions to campus and wanted to disrupt that event and, and staged a protest, um, uh, a protest outside. But then several students also tried to break into that event and kind of shut, disrupt it, if you will, if not completely shut it down. Um, the campus newspaper, being the paper of record, um, dutifully sent reporters out and they, you know, photograph. they recorded those events in images. They also wrote a story about it. And then, you know, as good reporters should, they tried to find many of the protesters who they, whose names they happen to know, because, you know, it's Northwestern, it's a relatively small student community. Um, they reached out to them on social media. They used the, um, they did what good reporters do. They tracked people down. They, they went to their social media pages. They used the student directory to track them down, mostly to get a comment, you know, what, why were you protesting? What was, it? again, journalism 101, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
They did a story, they included, oh, uh, an important piece of this that doesn't always get reported is that, and, and I didn't mention it in, in my piece either, was that the university president following that, because there was some damage to university property in the and the, in the clash, the campus police were called in, there was some damage to university property in that clash. The university president said students who were involved in damaging university property would be disciplined. He didn't say what that discipline was, but he said they, they could be disciplined. Now that's an important thing to consider when we get to what the the, the newspaper editor's decision was. So um, the newspaper did a story and they just got pilloried by the activists. Uh, the activists were upset that their images, that their, their images were in the paper. They were upset that the reporters had tried to track them down for comment. I mean, they were, and the, 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 paper, the editors and the reporters were getting, I won't say they were getting death threats, but vile and vicious threats were coming at them on social, on their social media channels and coming through the paper. And it was pretty impressive. I actually met independently with, I was called just for comment. Well, I met independently with some of the protesters who were, you know, asking me to rein in my student reporters. And I told them, well, they're really just doing journalism. I don't understand what you want them, want me to rein them in for. And by some of the reporters who were just, you know, heartbroken by the fact that their coverage had gotten this sort of violently negative response. And they were concerned that the images in particular would be used to identify students and used by the university to identify students and discipline them. So that was a concern as well. They made the decision to take the images down, to take the story down and take the images down. And they wrote, you know, a very well-meaning, well-intentioned apology to the community saying, you know, we're sorry if our coverage um, hurt the community in any way. Um, that touched off a brand new firestorm in the journalism community. And now suddenly all these well-respected reporters, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and um, uh, Jeffrey Tubin of the New Yorker are writing and they're pillaring these poor young journalists saying, oh my God, I'm ashamed of these journalists. How could they take this down? And now, those folks are piling on. We actually even had one student who was scheduled to go to do an internship at a prestigious newspaper that shall not be named withdraw that internship because this really? um, yes because this this student was one of the editors one of the the signing editors on this editorial and I was like this is out of control and I just felt like I had to say and do something to calm these storms so. I did kind of write an open letter to the community at large, to the communities at large. I had alumni calling me saying, I'm tearing up my degree, so this is what you're teaching at Medill. It's not the, the journalism school that I thought it was. And these snowflakes, I can't believe they, you know, would bow to this pressure. You know, in our day, we did blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> um, so I wrote an open letter saying, one, you know, everyone needs to calm down, you know. Um, this, he, I tried to put the event in context. I tried to help the, the outsiders who were beating up on the young journalists to see, this is, these are the pressures that they were under 
and here's why they did what they did. And those of us who have not, who did not practice journalism, you know, when I was in school, you wrote in the school newspaper, and you know, the 2,000 or so undergraduates on the on campus saw it. Now, the Daily Northwestern is an incredibly well-read student newspaper. It goes out, and people see it all over the place. So the mistakes that I made as a student reporter. Hardly anyone saw it. They are buried in the archives of the, the print archives of the Daily Northwestern, never to be unearthed again. Now these kids make a mistake. It is dispatched all over the world. Um, so if you don't know that pressure, you don't know what it's like to be in the pressure cooker of covering your peers um, and then having them have the ability to be able to assault and assail you on social media. You haven't felt that. Um, don't, I know you think you have when you're at the New York Times, but it's actually very different when those are nameless, faceless people out in the world, as opposed to these are people you are encountering on a daily basis as you cross campus on your way to class. Um, you have to think about that. But I also want to say to the protesters, how dare you conduct a public protest, mm -hmm. the, the essence of which is to gain attention and stop something from happening and then expect that the media is not supposed to cover it. How naive of you to think that in this public space, I know we're a private university, but you did something very public to attract attention. And it did attract attention. I would think that is your aim. You cannot then say, oh, we meant to do this in private. We didn't think that the media would actually cover it. What a ridiculous notion. And so I wanted them to see how absurd that was and to say, you know, let's come together and have a conversation about this so that we all have a better understanding of, you know, what is happening here and, and can plot a path forward. Yeah. Thank you for that recap. One of the things that brought to attention back in the mid nineties, when I was at Medill and, and discerning what my career was going to be and then decided to go into the ministry. But I, I think one of the biggest challenges for journalists and correct me if I'm wrong on this is on the one hand, for journalists who are going into a situation that is fraught with emotion, and if they want to get the story, on the one hand, they have to be sensitive to what's going on, and especially for those who are affected. But on the other hand, they also have to ask direct questions. I appreciated you, you let off your statement, really t quoting Philip, Philip Graham, saying that journalists are the authors of the first rough draft of history. And how do you how do you talk to journalists? How do you teach journalists to walk that line between being sensitive, but also you have to ask sometimes pointed questions that is, may bring about uh, a reaction that you weren't expecting or not, or even that you don't desire. And so how do you, how do you teach part of it? I experience have just got to go through it, but how do you teach it too? So I would say, you know, for, for a very long time, we've not done a good job of teaching it, right? We have, one of the things that I wrestled with when I was in journalism school was, you know, the notion of whether I had, as my journalism professors used to say, whether I had the fire in the belly. And mm. that sort of meant, you know, I interpreted that as meaning, and I think many journalists who are coming up interpret that as meaning you don't have sensitivity to, to, uh, to your sub, to the people that you are covering that, you know, your job is not to be sensitive. It's just to get the facts, ma'am. And bulldoze your way in, get the facts, get out and write this, you know, quote, objective story. Younger journalists are asking harder questions and forcing us to have a conversation about our responsibility 
to the people and groups that we cover. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think we have done that in the past. And it's forcing us to think pedagogically about how we teach that. Um, so we are now having much deeper, better conversations about, you know, again, when you enter these spaces, particularly spaces that are in, that where you're not a member of that community, how do you do that? What's your obligation to the community? What's your obligation to disclose what your both methodology, but also without not necessarily telling what the story is, but what your objectives are here? Um, that's a new way, I think, of thinking about journalism and not one that we have taught or practiced uh, very well in the past. But I, I'm happy to say that we are now. And I would hope that talking about in educating around things like cultural competency and asking good, sensitive questions and listening well. And listen, yeah, exactly. One, one would hope then that would bring about or bring back some of that trust that's been lost in the media. Exactly. That's why I think that's absolutely. And, and that gets back to, again, um, you know, we assume in the media that people understand what we do and how we do it. I don't know why we assume that, but we do. We just sort of think that everyone gets what we're trying to do here. And, and we also have for a very long time, despite all the evidence and all the polling that tells us differently, assumed that people feel that ours is a valorous profession and that we are here for the public good. Um, but you know, all that hand-wringing about first, the First Amendment and the importance of the press really happens within the sphere of journalism. I don't know that the general public is as concerned about First Amendment rights and protection, free, uh, press freedom as we in the media are. And we need to do a better job of evangelizing for that and sort of converting people so that they have an, a, a better understanding and realize what will be lost if we lose journalism. I've been reading lately too, this goes into the changing nature of newspapers and media too, is the lament, particularly around small to medium-sized media outlets, newspapers yeah. especially, because so many decisions, I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about the big media um, outlets, like the New York Times and so on. Which are doing okay. Yeah, which, yeah. And, and so much happens at the local level Absolutely. in the city council meetings and everything else. And when those media outlets let's go away, then there's no one to hold them accountable. That's right. Yeah. And, and again, that is a, a real danger. And we are, we are there right now. I mean, there are more than ugh, 1,200 counties in the country that have no daily newspaper right now, wow. or, or even a weekly. Um, they are absolute news deserts. And so you're right. That means there is no accountability for government and government processes in those in those areas. And that's a tremendous loss. Uh, but I also like to tell people, you know, not only do we lose that, we, you know, as I think I said in this piece, uh, journalists hold a mirror up to society. It enables us to see ourselves, both the good and the bad. So we're also losing lots of small things that are in local media as well. You know, those heroic stories that mm. we also don't get a chance to see and celebrate because they're not, in, in local media. They're now being, you know, confined to Facebook pages and 
and tweets, again, which the community, which doesn't bring us together as a community. It brings you together in your small group of friends, but it doesn't bring us together as a community mm. to be able to see and celebrate. And that's a tremendous loss as well. Yeah. Are there th- things that, um, in addition to subscribing to your local uh, media outlet and paying for that, are there other things that you uh, recommend for for people who, who receive the news, who want to support the news? Are there other things that you recommend uh, to folks? I mean, that that's big. You know, subscribing and paying for your, your local paper and, you know, being willing to pay close to what the value of that is. The other thing is, you know, we have been so dependent on display and classified advertising as our business model that we continue to undervalue this thing. And part of it is also we, we as journalists, we want our work to be accessible to everyone. We don't want price to be a barrier. We don't want this, own, this information only to be available to those people who can pay for it. I get that. I understand that. But what we've done by continuously undercutting the, the cost of the thing is that we've cheapened it in the minds of, of readers. They just sort of think it should be like air and it's supposed to be free and that there's no... Um, there's no value to the craft. And pe- and I tell people, you know, Nike does not sweat over the fact that it costs them 99 cents to make the shoes that they sell for $100. I- I'm not saying that we need that kind of markup, but we need to sort of impress upon people that this is a valuable commodity and that we need to pay something for it. And we've got to stop, uh, you know, again, underval- undercutting ourselves by undervaluing the, the product. Yeah, I love. I, pre- I appreciate that phrase to value the craft of it because I think that's uh, that's so true. Well, I usually uh, end th- this podcast by asking uh, my guests to share a story of failure, and so I was wondering if you could uh, share one as well. This could be anything, personal, professional, uh, oh, funny, serious, something that happened this morning, a few years ago, what have you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, God, there's so many. I've had many failures in my life. <laughs> I just, I, this is fresh, this is top of mind because I just talked to a, a group of graduate students about it um, yesterday, you know, and I always try to give them hope and show that, you know, we are, none of us is infallible and we often make mistakes in our lives and in our, our careers and we learn from those. And I was telling the story of once when I was a reporter in Louisville, Kentucky, I did this major, major takeout on teenage pregnancy. It was a time when teenage pregnancy was on the uptick in the, the country and we, again, I you know, the staff that I was on was to look at the changing nature of Louisville. I was looking at, you know, teenage pregnancy in in Jefferson County, which is where Louisville is, is uh, situated. Um, and my editor, the, the, the data that I got from um, the, the health department, the Jefferson County Health Department, um, just really wasn't showing as huge an uptick to make a big, we, we, and we were going to do this major takeout. I interviewed tons and tons of teenage mothers. We had little sidebars on each of their individual stories, but the numbers were not showing a huge increase. And my, my editor was just convinced that it, it had to be there. And she just kept pressing me, you know, you're not reading the numbers correctly. I keep hearing about this huge uptick. So I think under that pressure, I, in doing the calculations, I, I somehow missed a column in this database. And I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, we do have this 
15% uptick. I sort of just didn't do it right before. So we built the story around that. That was in my nut graph. And well, the health department calls and said, uh, I think you read that table wrong. <laughs> um, and yes, sure enough, I had read that table wrong. And again, it was, it, I think I, I bowed to the pressure. Um, not to throw my editor entirely under the bus, I still should have double checked, but she was pressing me a lot to, to, to make this story juicier and spicier than it was with the numbers mm -hmm. that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and so after doing, I mean, this was a major takeout. It was a front page story. It, it had a front page tease on, on, the, on, the, um, on the, the front front page. And then on the local front, I, I mean, the um, features page front, it was, you know, again, major, above the fold, lots of pictures, 4,000 words, a 4,000 word takeout. I mean, this is huge for a newspaper. And I had to write a major retract, retraction, almost negating, you know, negating the whole thing um, because we'd done the numbers wrong. Horribly embarrassing. I said, it's the kind of thing that as a, a, a reporter, you just want to crawl under a rock <laughs> and never show your face again because it is so, so, so embarrassing. I thought it was going to be the end of my career. I thought it was going to be fired on the spot. Uh, fortunately, my editor did take some of the blame for this and take, take oh, some of good. the heat off of me for it, but it was absolutely devastating. And I, I use that, I sold that to my students to say, A, you know, never, you have to stick your ground, stand your ground and never let an editor push you into doing a story. When you know it's not right, don't do it <laughs> just to please an editor. Uh, but B, you know, learn from those mistakes. First, double check all of your numbers. <laughs> Make sure that you are <laughs> double and triple checking. Um, but learn from that, learn from that mistake and you, you can move on and rise up. So that's a, yeah. that's a failure. So that's top of mind. So I just shared it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Add uh, maths is to one of the other things that journalists, at least I have to have uh, Absolutely. Some, uh, expertise, but at least a working knowledge of some Absolutely. of the Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We've been stressing that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, uh, Charles Whitaker, thank you so much. I appreciate thank your you. giving the time for this conversation. And thank you. It was my pleasure. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Charles for giving his time for this conversation. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast as I will be showing a bonus episode next week. I usually do these every other week, but again, with this special focus on journalism, I'm doing three episodes in a row, and that will be a conversation with freelance journalist Derek Clifton. To find out more about my ministry and my book, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.